Well, tonight we're continuing in our series in 2 Corinthians, Strength in Weakness. And our passage is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 to 21. So go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. You're going to want a Bible tonight. You can either pull it up on your phone, or if you have a hardcover Bible, or if you don't have one, then just sit close to someone, because I want you to see for yourself the wonders that are here in this passage tonight. As you're turning to that passage, before we read it, I want to set up our encounter with God through this word tonight with two metaphors. Number one, raking versus digging. And number two, doing a jigsaw puzzle. So the first metaphor, raking versus digging. It's designed to encourage us and motivate us to stay plugged in tonight, to stay focused when we come to dense, complex passages in the Bible like this one. So the temptation for us when we come to these kinds of passages, whether for me in preparation or for you in listening, is to settle and be content with what can be gleaned quickly from the surface and without too much effort. In other words, raking, raking. The problem with that approach, though, is that when you rake, you only get leaves. On the contrary, if we do the much harder work of digging, that is, of of thinking, of keeping our minds engaged, what the Bible calls girding up the loins of our minds, we just might get diamonds. And so let's not rake tonight, let's dig. And I believe there are exquisite diamonds here to find and to behold and to treasure. That's the first metaphor. If the first metaphor, raking versus digging, is designed to encourage and motivate us to keep pressing in when it gets tough and slogging through, the second metaphor, doing a jigsaw puzzle, is designed to give us a helpful approach for how we're going to tackle it tonight. With a jigsaw puzzle, as you know, you begin with all the individual pieces sort of scattered out in front of you shifting them around to discern what fits with what, repeating that process until eventually the whole picture finally emerges and you complete the puzzle. Now, no analogy is perfect, but in a similar way, we're going to work tonight at fitting the, the various pieces, the individual pieces of this passage together until we see the whole picture. And just as some pieces of a puzzle have more detail than others, they're more complex than others, they have more going on and require a closer look, a longer look, so also some of the pieces, some of the phrases and clauses and verses in this passage are going to require a longer look. The goal by the end is to have so accurately put all the pieces together, seen them, put them together, that we then see with razor-sharp clarity the breathtaking and life-changing whole. So, with these two metaphors in mind, digging for diamonds and assembling the puzzle, let's read the passage and ask for God's help 
2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. (coughs) From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I'm actually going to read into the next chapter, just a couple verses as well. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. This is God's word. Amen. Let's pray and ask for his help. God, as we come to your word tonight... There's so much here, and we need your help to see clearly. There are diamonds here for us to behold and to treasure. Help us see them. Help me communicate clearly, and may the glory and beauty of Jesus be unmistakably evident from beginning to end. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so obviously when you're doing a puzzle, a jigsaw puzzle, you have a box, right? You have the picture on the box that sort of helps orient you to what you're about to work at. And so here's my attempt to give you the picture on the box, so to speak, before we get into the details. In a phrase, here's the picture, and I want you to hold it in your mind as much as you can The rest of the time, as we go through and spend some significant time and detail in some of the pieces, here's the picture on the box. Here's where we're all, where it's all going. Reconciled sinners, reconciling sinners. That's the picture. That's the whole. Think of those as two major halves 
of the puzzle. Sinners being reconciled to God and consequently working with God to reconcile more sinners. Reconciled sinners reconciling sinners. All the individual pieces of this text fall into one or the other of those halves. And we'll start by assembling the more foundational half first, reconciled sinners. Reconciled sinners. It's the big idea that we're going to look at here for much of our time. There are two big pieces in this half that we need to put together. (coughs) Excuse me. Number one, the need for reconciliation. What does this text show us, say to us about our need for reconciliation? Why reconciliation at all? It's the first piece, big piece of this half. And then the second is the means of reconciliation. How has God done it? How has he achieved it? And the need and the means. First, the need. Here's my summary All human beings are sinners who will stand before Christ at the judgment as such, as his enemies, rebels against King Jesus, and because of that, receive his just punishment or his just judgment. That's the need in summary. Three quick pointers from the text to this. Number one, notice verse 19. So again, we're going to be looking a lot. So I'm going to keep, I'll say notice a lot or look at this a lot. So go with me. Notice verse 19. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Okay, so what's the condition of the world that necessitates reconciliation here? It's in the phrase, our trespasses being counted against us. Now, to trespass in the Bible simply means to break God's commandments, to disobey His Word, which is a a fitting description of all of us, of every human being. It's the condition of the world. And unless something changes, those trespasses remain counted against us. They will be the basis for God's just judgment. We are, as Paul says elsewhere, dead in our trespasses and sins. Second pointer, notice verse 21. For our sake, he that is God made him, that is Christ, to be sin who knew no sin. God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin. Sin. Now, the fact that Jesus is said to be made sin for our sake in this text surely implies that we're the sinners, right? It's clear that Jesus isn't the sinner. He knew no sin, that's what the text says. But he was made to be sin for our sake. He was regarded, or he was counted to be sin. Not sin in and of himself, no sin, but for us, for our sake, counted to be such. That implies our condition is we're sinners and we have trespasses and that's a problem. They are going to be counted against us. Okay, third pointer. 
to this need for reconciliation. Notice verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Why does Paul mention the fear of the Lord here? Where does that come from? Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. I think it's because he just mentioned in verse 10, standing before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, it's true, as Pastor Ben Panner helpfully explained last week, that this judgment is for the evaluation of Christians' lives in view of rewards and and not a reference to the condemnation that awaits non-Christians at the final judgment. I think that's right. Nevertheless, think about this. If it's true that contemplating standing before Jesus to be evaluated as a Christian provokes a proper, healthy fear of him, then how much more should the thought of standing before him at the final judgment not being reconciled? So the situation is serious, in other words. The situation is dire. God is not to be trifled with. He is holy. He is righteous and will by no means clear the guilty. Everyone will receive what is due, what they deserve, and what we all deserve as sinners with our trespasses counted against us. What we all deserve is God's wrath, which I think is why he says, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. In other words, I got to tell other people, they don't want to encounter him in that state. Souls, I think, are three pointers in this text that uncover and show for us the need for reconciliation. But I want you to listen to Romans 5.10. This is a great summary here. You don't have to turn there. Just listen of this reconciliation and need dynamic. Paul says, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. In other words, the opposite of being reconciled to God is being an enemy of God. There's hostility between you and God if you are not reconciled. And we're enemies because we've rejected him as our creator. We're under his wrath. No reconciliation with God no salvation, which raises a crucial question. What hope is there for us, for enemies and rebels who have committed treason against our God? What hope is there? And that brings us to the second piece of this half of the puzzle the means of reconciliation, which is the greatest news in the whole world for rebels. It's the gospel. But before we dig into that, I want to make sure we don't miss an opportunity here. I want to make sure we don't miss the significance of this radical diagnosis of our condition as it relates to how we as Christians think 
about the church's mission in the world and even our mission as individual Christians. Here's what I mean. There are many serious problems in the world. Poverty, homelessness, sickness, unemployment, and a thousand more. There are many serious problems in the world, but hear me, none more serious or fundamental than this right here. As a church, as individual Christians, living out our our different vocations in our day-to-day lives, we must work to alleviate all kinds of suffering. Yes, we must if we're to follow Jesus and be like him. We must work to alleviate all kinds of suffering, but we must work to alleviate especially eternal suffering. For this is the fundamental problem that the gospel, the good news of reconciliation, addresses. In other words, we must keep the main thing, the main thing, even as we rightly do many other things in ministry, as a church, in our lives, seeking to bless the world and to do good. We must keep the main thing, the main thing. And this is the most serious, fundamental need of every person on the planet to be reconciled to God. So let's get into that. How does that happen? How did God do it? How did he make it possible? It's the good news. It's the gospel. It's the means of reconciliation. And here's my summary of how he did it. (coughs) The grace of God in the death and resurrection of Christ. That's the simplest way to say it. God's grace in the death and resurrection of Christ. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna make it more complex because it's all here in this text for us. I'm gonna give you an expanded sentence here. How did he do it? Through his grace, in the sin-bearing, righteousness-supplying, New creation launching (laughs) death and resurrection of Christ. That's a mouthful. But it's all here. And they assigned me the whole text, so I've got to do it. Okay? How did God do it? In His grace, in the sin bearing, righteousness supplying, new creation launching death and resurrection of Christ. And we're going to take those one at a time. And we're just going to go through them. Remember, raking versus digging. We're going to dig for a little bit. First, God's grace. Jumping into next week's text for just a moment, I read it. Notice chapter 6, verse 1. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive, Paul says, the grace of God in vain. In other words, all the reconciling work that Paul is talking about in our passage tonight, the end of chapter 5, all of that work is called or summed up by the word grace. This is God's grace. It's his unmerited favor toward us. It's his gift of himself in love to us, not because of who we are, but in spite of who we are. 
It's grace. Another way to say it is found in verse 18 of our passage. Namely, look at it, where Paul says, all this is from God. That's grace. In other words, all of this reconciling work, this reconciliation is from God. It originates with Him. Salvation begins with Him. Yes, there is a problem, but God. But God. That's grace. It's God's grace. Second, it's God's grace in the death and resurrection of Christ. Okay, notice verses 14 and 15. Let's read them again. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this. What's the this? This whole idea here that he's about to say. That one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. There we see the death and resurrection of Christ. The death of Christ here is spoken of in both representative and substitutionary terms. Those are big words. I I know. There's no other better word, one word to say it. Christ's death here is presented to us in representative and substitutionary terms terms. That is, the one stands for the many. That's representation. You see that? One has died for all. And the one stands in the place of, or for the sake of, or for the benefit of the many. That's substitution. One for another. Both representation and substitution here. One has died for all, and therefore all have died. Now, Paul here does not mean all in the sense of all without exception, but all in the sense of all without distinction. When it says one has died for all, talking about the death of Christ, and then he says, therefore, because of that, all have died, That does not mean every single person. It means those who by faith in Christ have died with Christ so that his death counts for them. That's what Paul means. (coughs) The death here that all experience is the death to the old sinful self that takes place in union with Christ when each person believes in Christ. When Christ died, as was read out for us earlier from Galatians 2, we who are his people, all of his people, no distinctions, all different kinds, but his people. When Christ died, we who are his people died. I have been crucified with Christ, Paul says. Did you catch that when it was read out earlier? I have been crucified with Christ, yet I live. Notice the same progression in verse 15 of that. And he died for all, picking up from the end of verse 14 as well, all have died, but he died for all, that those who live. So 
those who have died are also living. This isn't talking about physical death here. It's talking about the death that takes place in union with Christ. And then he's talking about the life that comes, the new life that comes from union with Christ. Death to the old self, raised to newness of life. That's what Paul's talking about here. That's what the death of Christ has done for his people. And then all of this and more is packed into the little phrase in verse 18, through Christ. So look at that again, where he says, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Now there's a truckload of content in that two-word phrase, through Christ. It includes all we've seen so far from verses 14 and 15, his representative death and resurrection for us and his substitutionary death and resurrection for us, him in our place and for us. It includes that and it includes even more. So what is that more? Well, let's keep looking. And here we're going to flesh out the sin-bearing aspect and the righteousness-supplying aspect of his death and resurrection. These two things both take place for his people, all his people. Look at verse 19. He's going to restate what he just said in verse 18, but expand on it a little bit more. So verse 19, that is, here's what through Christ means from verse 18, here in verse 19, that is, in Christ... God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Okay, so, somehow, in union with Christ, there's the in Christ of verse 19, somehow, in union with Christ, our trespasses are no longer counted against us, and we are thus reconciled. So we're just drilling down deeper into the meaning of the cross right now. That's what we're doing. How does it work? How does it count for us? In union with him, our trespasses are no longer counted against us, and therefore we are reconciled. In other words, in order to be reconciled to God, our trespasses, our sins have to be dealt with so that they're no longer counted against us. And Paul says that happens in Christ. I said, okay. (laughs) Okay, I think I'm with you. I think I'm tracking, Paul. How is it the case that my sin, my trespasses, can be no longer counted against me? What does it have to do with union with Christ? How does that work? And here we come to verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Here's one of those places in the Bible where you just have to pause and take a breath. Here we come to the heart and the wonder of the gospel. What has often been called the great exchange. 
that provides the foundation for every benefit and blessing we receive as Christians. This is a profound text. We have a word for it, theological jargon alert. We have a word for it, but it's, it's a biblical word, so I'm justified. It's called justification, okay? This is the word for it. This is what we call it. This is the reality of which this text is speaking, justification. Justification means to be declared righteous, and it has two parts to it. How does that happen? It has two parts to it, corresponding to the two halves of this verse. Number one, having your sins not counted against you, but against Christ, though they are really yours and not his. That's the first half of the verse. And number two, having the righteousness of God in Christ credited to you, though it is not yours, but his. In other words, sins forgiven and righteousness received. And it all happens in union with Christ. Did you see that? Look at verse 21 again. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Our sins are forgiven because Christ has paid the penalty for them. They were counted to him. And we have received a righteousness, but it was his. He was faithful. He was obedient. We weren't. We receive that in union with him, and therefore we are justified. We are declared righteous. It's an amazing thing. I want to read a great summary of it from Charles Hodge, who was a prominent theologian and principal of Princeton Theological Seminary in the latter half of the 19th century. Here's what he has to say about it. There's probably no passage in the scriptures in which the doctrine of justification is more concisely or clearly stated than in this passage. Our sins were imputed to Christ. That's a fancy word for counted or credited. Our sins were credited or imputed to Christ and his righteousness is imputed or credited to us. He bore our sins. We are clothed in his righteousness. Christ bearing our sins did not make him morally a sinner, nor does Christ's righteousness become subjectively ours. It's not the moral quality of our souls. This is a judicial idea, a legal idea. Our sins were the judicial ground of the sufferings of Christ so that they were a satisfaction of justice. And his righteousness is the judicial ground of our acceptance with God so that our pardon is an act of justice. It is not mere pardon that is the forgiveness of sins, but justification alone, both forgiveness of sins and the crediting of righteousness that gives us peace with God. In other words, that reconciles us with God. That's how he did it. Amazing grace.
the great exchange. Well, as if that wasn't enough and complex enough, the death and resurrection of Christ not only bears our sin and provides our righteousness, but it also launches God's promised new creation. So look at verses 16 and 17 with me. From now on, Paul says, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? New creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So what is going on here? What is going on here? God foretold long ago through the prophet Isaiah a coming new creation. And he even uses that language. A coming new creation when all would be set right and the glory of the Lord would fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. And what Paul is saying here is that that promise of new creation has now begun to be fulfilled through the death and resurrection of Christ. The reconciling of sinners to God now in this present time is the advance signpost and guarantee of the full reconciliation of all creation which will take place when Christ returns. The new creation has been launched But Paul's emphasis here is on the now time, the present time. In other words, though the new creation has been launched, it's sort of inaugurated, that has begun, but not yet consummated. The world is still broken. There's still pain. There's still sin. There's still death. But there's real newness. Jesus rose from the dead, and all who are united to him die and rise in him and have newness of life. There's real newness. So we live right now in this sort of overlap of the ages, if you will, the already but not yet of the fulfillment of God's promises, the renewal of all creation. That's where we live right now. Now, Paul's emphasis here is not on what's coming finally, but what happens now. That is, if anyone is in Christ right now, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. And this is radical language, new creation. Spiritually speaking, we don't just need ibuprofen for aches and pains. We need a heart transplant. We need to be made new. It speaks, again, to the seriousness of our need, of the problem. We need a new heart. We need to be born again. We need to be a new creation I'm reading through a sort of memoir uh, or life advice kind of book by a famous actor right now, and I recently read this bit describing his hopes for how you will, as a reader, will experience the book. He says this, hopefully, it's medicine that tastes good, a couple of aspirin instead of the infirmary, a spaceship to Mars without needing your pilot's license, going to church without having to be born again and laughing through the tears. Well, whatever value such an outlook might have for reading his book, going to church without ever being born again, which happens all over this world, 
is ultimately hopeless. That's not what this text says. You need to be a new creation. You need to be born again. And Paul is saying that if you are in Christ, it has happened. You are a new creation in him. The old has passed away. The new has come. So, God has achieved reconciliation. That's what this text says very plainly. God has done it. And he has done it in this way. By his grace in the sin-bearing, righteousness-supplying, new creation-launching death and resurrection of Christ. That's how he did it. And that's the second piece of the first half of the puzzle Remember, the first piece of the first half was our need for reconciliation. And the second piece of this first half of the puzzle is the means, how God has done it, the glory of the gospel of justification by faith in union with Christ, being reconciled to God and being a new creation. That's the second piece of the first half of the puzzle. Reconciled sinners. Where are you at tonight? Where do you stand with God? Are you an enemy of God on account of your unforgiven sin and under his judgment? Or are you a friend of God because of the reconciling work of Christ? Where are you at tonight? If you're here and you've never believed in Christ, you've never, as Paul says here, received his grace to you in Jesus Christ, if you've never trusted in him, I implore you tonight, be reconciled to God. Most important thing you'll ever do. God has demonstrated his love for you in the work of Christ. All you need to do is receive it. To turn away from yourself and reliance on yourself and to turn to him and receive his grace in Christ Jesus for you. If you're here tonight and you're already a Christian, I want you to hear this word. Don't receive the grace of God in vain. Remember that part? Chapter 6, verse 1. Working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. That is, continue steadfast in the faith. Stay rooted in Christ, built up in him, not shifting from the hope of this Gospel, there is no other one. Don't be deceived or led astray to any other so-called gospel. This is the only gospel, the true gospel. And Paul was concerned for the Corinthians on this score. He makes that clear in chapter 11. Now, we, we have a few weeks to go before we get to chapter 11. I realize that. But you'll see it when we get there. Paul's concern for the Corinthians here. 
Don't be deceived. Don't be led astray to another Jesus, to another gospel. There is no other one. This is the true gospel. There are always other Jesuses, other gospels on offer. The gospel of fame, of notoriety, of of public prestige, of large followings. The gospel of health and wealth. The gospel of self-reliance. Kind of pull yourself up from your bootstraps. There's always other gospels on offer. Don't be deceived or led astray. This is the only true gospel. Continue steadfast in it, being built up in it, not shifting from it. This, the good news of God's gracious reconciliation of sinners. Now, I know this has been heavy so far. It's heavy to even explain. (laughs) I know it's been heavy listening And it's been lengthy. But this text is heavy. This text is weighty. There's amazing, mind-blowing truth to be seen here. So we've lingered. And my prayer, my prayer coming into tonight, my prayer right now, is that God would, in this moment, grant you, grant me, the same experience as that of C.S. Lewis and countless others when working through what he called a tough bit of theology. Listen to Lewis. He says, For my own part, I tend to find the doctrinal books, theology books, often more helpful in devotion than the devotional books. And I rather suspect that the same experience may await others. I believe that many who find that, quote-unquote, nothing happens when they sit down or kneel down to a book of devotion would find that the heart sings unbidden while they are working their way through a tough bit of theology with a pipe in their teeth and a pencil in their hand. Hmm. Now, pipe and pencil or not, this first half of the puzzle has been a tough bit of theology. It's been dense. There's a lot here. But I hope your heart is singing because of it. Now, the only thing that's left for us to do is to put the other half of the puzzle in place. And mercifully, this half is more straightforward and simple and shorter. We just finished reconciled sinners. That was the first half of the puzzle. And now we turn to reconciling sinners. Multiple times in this passage, we see the movement from what God has done for us to what now, in light of that, he gives to us. I wonder if you caught it as we've read through the passage a little bit. (coughs) Look especially with me at verses 18 to 20. Paul says, all this, all this New creation, reconciling work of God. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. There's reconciled sinners. And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Or keep going. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And what also was he doing? Entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. 
Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. (coughs) As reconciled sinners, we now have a ministry and a message of reconciliation. A calling to proclaim the good news of God's reconciliation of sinners to all people. We are, as he says, ambassadors for Christ. And every time we open our mouths with this message, we are encouraged to know. I hope you're encouraged by this. I am, as a preacher. We are encouraged to know that it is actually God speaking. It is God making his appeal through us, through our proclamation of this message. So therefore, along with Paul, we seek to persuade others. That's what he said in verse 11. We persuade others. We've been reconciled, and now we get an ambassadorial ministry of reconciliation, a calling on our lives to take this most glorious news in the world and proclaim it to all around us. We're ambassadors for Christ. We have been reconciled, and we have been given now a ministry of reconciliation a message, a word to share and to proclaim. And we are to do it, like Paul, with integrity and simplicity of heart, sincerity of heart before God and others. No gimmicks, no games, just straight truth in love to all those around us. That's how verses 11 to 13 fit in this passage. Look at it again real briefly. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God, and if we are in our right mind, it is for you. In other words, We go about our ambassadorial work. We go about being ministers of reconciliation with integrity and sincerity of heart. And that applies to our lives, the way we live. We're not hypocrites, but that also applies to the way we speak. We speak the truth clearly. We renounce disgraceful and underhanded ways, Paul says earlier in this letter. But by the open statement of the truth, we commend the good news of God's reconciliation of sinners. That's what he's called us to now. Not only do we receive the grace of reconciliation with God, we also, because of that, now get to receive the joy of leading others into that same experience of grace and the reconciliation they have with God. This is who we are as Christians, and this is the whole picture of this text. The picture on the box, reconciled sinners, 
reconciling sinners. And the glue, with this I finish, and the glue that holds them both together, that sort of brings those two halves together, solidifies them, keeps them together, is the love of Christ. Verse 14. Look at it one more time. For the love of Christ controls us. It's the love of Christ. Christ's love is both demonstrated in his death and resurrection for us and it becomes the very love that controls us. That is, that motivates us and compels us forward to proclaim this gospel to the world. It's no accident that the love of God in Christ is at the very center, holding it all together. That's the whole message of the Bible. The love of Christ in his death and resurrection for us, that very love compelling us to go forward with this gospel to the world. May it be so in our lives. Let's pray. Father, we stand amazed at your grace toward us as sinners, at the beautiful exchange where our sin was put upon Christ, the one who knew no sin, and his righteousness counted to us, though we have no righteousness of our own. And thus we are reconciled to you. It's greatest news in the world. I pray that we would have that fresh experience of that love, of your love for us tonight. And that as a, as a result, we would be compelled and constrained to go forward with this message as your ambassadors to the world. We ask you to do it. In Jesus' name, amen.